Secrets and Shadows. I'm standing in my apartment in front of a very tall and old grandfather clock. It's something I never run because who wants Big Ben clanging in a one-bedroom apartment? It's a clock that was handed down from my father, from his father, and his father, and his father, and so on. The thing dates back to revolutionary times when founding fathers had these clocks made to memorialize the time and the place. I've walked by this thing a million times and just recently became aware of its relevance as this country sits again in the crosshairs of what will the future look like. I open it up and look at the still pendulum, not moving, not advancing. It feels like a weird metaphor for the times in which we live. So the history of the clock and of my family from Mayflower forward suddenly seems more interesting than the silent knowledge I've been carrying for years. Let's face it, in L.A., it's really not a place where this sort of stuff matters a whole lot, except maybe the perverse fact that I'm related to Benedict Arnold and Abe Lincoln on my mother's side, which would be worth a hoot and a holler at a comedy club, especially with the counterpoint that I'm also related to the framers of the Declaration of Independence on my father's side. A total Mayflower mess that might make for a good movie script, and that's about it. But what I'm going to share with you is the surprising result of exploring this collision of all those histories. I thought a bit of a genealogical expedition made sense to go back to the place where it all started east of Washington, D.C., the eastern shore of Maryland, plantation land. What I would discover isn't what I expected, and not necessarily a source of pride. I'm standing at the base of the Lincoln Memorial, looking over the long stretch of water at the Capitol on the far side. In the distance, I see a huge crowd gathering in what clearly looks like a march in progress. I have a couple of extra hours, so it makes sense to go check it out, being the news guy that I am, that we really are all these days, that many of us have been forced to become. It's a gay rights demonstration, another opportunity for yet another minority group within a minority group to take to the streets in our austere nation's capital to remind those who run things that we all actually exist. But what exactly are we demonstrating to them? How to complain loudly? Well, it looks like the usual slogans and banners and fists and fury. Really, our Bill of Rights in full action. It's funny, you know, to consider the histrionic lengths that that all of us are forced to go to when trying to get our government's attention. Kind of like children trying to get the attention of parents who say they have more important things to worry about. So it occurred to me that in our current American economic political system, part of this march was to lobby to maintain a status of preferred minority group with significant economic lobby, or PMGSEL. Just made that up, of course, but it seems kind of spot on. 
What seemed to be missing in this human rights march, as it was being called, were the other minorities, which I suspect hadn't been seriously invited. Even a two-year-old gets that something just isn't right. So sparked with this awareness, I decided it was time to begin my journey. So here I am in Washington, D.C., near the spot where my father's side landed from England in 1645, and I'm marching in the same steamy bog that the Founding Fathers originally thought way too nasty to ever plunk the nation's capital in. My ancestors were among those who created the rules that gave themselves all the rights and power and denied others their rights and their freedoms. And here I was marching with one of the many groups of society's so-called others. By the way, both I and my twin sister, or Twister, <laughs> are both enchanted, which is the universe's gift to Republican parents, not one, but two gay children. And right here on our own nation's capital, a capital that my other people helped create, as I said, to remind that new government at the time that we quote-unquote all existed. So what do I mean by my other people? Well, I'm talking about the living, breathing, founding members of this curious nation of ours. My name is Carrie Sudler Harrison, and I'm... I'm a wasp. <laughs> Nowadays, ironically, wasps have even become a minority group themselves. And here's another shocking tidbit. You may not have known that there could be social register gays, but apparently they're thriving. The Social Register is sort of a private social phone book for first families, and much to the horror of some for sure, a recent Social Register entry even featured a gay male couple's summer place with color pictures of the two of them together. <laughs> Times are changing in some of the upper tiers for sure, but truth be told, this move toward anybody's equality is still an anachronism and the political divisions across America and now the larger world seem only to grow. Hate crimes have risen 340% in just the past couple of years alone. College professors at our best universities are being attacked and assaulted for being any shade of brown, for being anything that doesn't fit into the fringe of society's growing dominion thanks to social media and the ever-devolving news cycle. I mentioned I descend from one of the founding families of colonial America. I didn't ask for it, and I certainly didn't get to vote for it. The first mention of my last name, Sudler, to be found in the archives of America is that of Captain Joseph Sudler of Kent County, Maryland, who married Sicily in 1682. So Joseph, upon his death, left almost 3,000 English pounds to his children. That was, of course, after all accounts had been settled, and that'd be net income worth today roughly $3 billion at 7% interest. By the way, I've never seen a penny of it, and I never will. Plus, I also cleverly work in radio, which pays less than driving an Uber hoisted up on cinder blocks. So I'm right here with you as we forge ahead in this story together. I also happen to have a family Bible, also dating back to colonial days, written in 1700s quill ink. This family Bible contains impeccable records from births to deaths, along with diary records listing slaves by name and market value. Yeah, it turns out we were slaveholders, plantation owners, the big bad specter of old dominion, the evil incarnate of a history America would just as soon forget. 
even more so today, given current politics. So I figured it was time to take that drive and see the nearby place that my family had established and see what, if any, legacy was left behind. And more importantly, what had been done about it. Otherwise, all this human rights marching is mere cardio at best. If I was to understand, I had to go south. I had to go to Sledmore, the still-standing original family house from 1713, which still bears the name Sledmore. I'm driving from Washington, D.C. across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge to the eastern shore of Maryland. Turns out exactly at the foot of the bridge is Kent Island, where my family first landed in 1645. So I'm going to pull over and grab a crab cake sandwich at this local gas station slash cafe. I should have passed on the gas station crab cake, but Chesapeake crab's supposed to be famous, and I'm going to leave that up to the experts in the future. This part of Maryland is tidewater, basically a gigantic long marsh or moor, hence the name Sledmore. It's filled with sycamore and hyacinth and willows, bogs, bugs. Even with the windows up and the air conditioning on high, I can smell the tinge of salt water in the vapor that's rising from, uh, from the bay itself. But mainly what you see around is a flat expanse of farmland with a sparse populace of trees and hedges like some bizarre agricultural atoll. And behind me in the distance is the dome of the capital, which some admire, while others, I'm told, still bear deep resentment. And one half mile, turn right after the white building with a red top. It's actually a cornfield with a silo that has a red top. I've arrived in the plantation region where signers of the Declaration of Independence had lived, including my ancestors. Deeper in this region is Sudlersville, named after my family, the first, last, and only founders of that area. Sudlersville is probably best known for its bronze statue of Hall of Famer Jamie Foxx, bat in hand. Foxx was one of baseball's greatest sluggers, faced off with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in the 1930s, and was MVP three times. Tom Hanks's character in the movie League of Their Own was based on Jimmy Fox, but if you didn't know anything about Jimmy Fox, probably going to drive right by Sudlersville. Quick history, the family was awarded the region as part of a British royal land grant from Lord Baltimore in the latter part of 1668, which was analogous to the American frontier promises of the 1800s. You know, you're a good... God-manifesting colonist and a Protestant, and you arrive and you build a legacy. Well, today, Maryland is dotted with people named Sudler, but they're mostly African-American and part of a legacy which deserves, I think, based on what I've recently learned, a proper apology. Looks like the town of today and the land upon which my ancestors decided to settle are totally different worlds. Where there was once tobacco and cotton growing from slave labor, there now seems to be nothing but soybeans and even more soybeans for probably a new Chinese customer base. 
I'm trying to wrap my head around being simultaneously stunned by the sheer age of this place and the pre-revolutionary war history of everything that's around me. The house itself is more modest than the usual ostentatious standards of more southern plantations. Its construction date well precedes the antebellum versions that Hollywood's made famous, like in Gone with the Wind, for instance. This one is basically two centuries of an ever-expanding plantation residence. The original structure looks like it's still intact. Um, A red brick colonial with white shutters and white rose vine fences are encircling the perimeter. The old brick is eerily visible as a kind of hazy outline of southern productivity from an era where success was literally measured in arms and legs. Behind the house trickles a stream below. Bees and mosquitoes seem to fill the air because the humidity is incredibly high. A large willow hangs over the shady porch of a smaller house. The air is thick with bugs and the scent of incoming rain. On the porch sits a distant relative, 90-year-old William Sudler Goodhand, or Sus, as is his nickname. I introduce myself and ask him to recount the history of this former plantation. He pauses, sipping his iced tea. Well, this was slavery country, and they were slavers. Uh, Civil War, they fought them. The family fought on both sides of the war. Hedging their bets, he says. So if the South won... So much the better for business. If the North had won, my family'd still find itself on the winning side, retaining land and open for new business. Slavery was just a way of life. It, you know, it's just uh, it's the way it was. But tobacco was a fairly good crop. This distant relative showing no deeper thought or awareness of the actual nature of slavery. He spoke of a crop made the more profitable harvested on the backs of indentured servants. With the passage of time, I wondered what it was like for him over his nine decades to have met some of the local people from Maryland, people with the same name as ours, people likely slave descendants who have shared his, my last name, ever since the Civil War. I I don't know any of them. Uh, I really don't, but I know there are some. You pick and choose your friends, we pick and chose ours, and they pick and chose theirs, and everybody got along pretty well. My distant kin spoke as if this region of Maryland that my family helped establish three centuries ago still preferred an easy, untalked-about segregation, polished with a sort of genteel bigotry. I felt like I was trapped in a sort of time warp, particularly in this second decade of a no longer new millennium. Uh, like the colored man today, that uh, as he gets his education and as he acts more like he should act, like a human being should act, he's accepted more and more. And the only thing that keeps him from not being completely accepted is they are different. Carrie Harrison with you. Thank you for sticking with me as I continue to explore this part of Maryland my family helped establish in 1645 and what this region's like today as it sits in the distant shadow of Washington, D.C., only an hour to the west. 
Honestly, I thought this would simply be an unremarkable visit to the ancestral home, but what I learned about my own history and much of early America made what I was taught in school all the more personal and real. And while I was greeted with warmth and a certain southern charm, what I would next discover made me want to dig even more uncomfortably deeper. It was time to enter the plantation house itself, Sledmore, the sort of name for a house you would find in the English countryside somewhere. Inside the house was cousin Foster Sudler Willis, and I put cousin in quotation marks because the relationship is so distant in my lineage. Watch your step. Foster led me down a steep staircase, well over 300 years old. Where were the uh, slaves kept around here? Most of them in the basement. They had slave quarters. Um, we don't have any actual shackles or anything down here. Um, I can show you the outside of the house where the original um, section was built in 1713, and then the upper part was built in 1805. Even had a... Um, plumbing or a bathroom outside on stilts. We climbed back up the steep stairs and stepped outside and out the pantry door. The west side of Sledmore, facing endless acres of soybeans and still existing corn rows, Foster pointed up to three stories of faded brick. Look around here. This is the original house. See it? Yeah. That's what it looked like in 1713. And the rest, and you can see where they added on in 1805. The rain clouds had become black, and a light drizzle was falling everywhere. There was also that uncomfortable itch when mosquitoes go crazy in the light rain. A dog and a cat remarkably sat near each other under the same willow tree, which offered rain protection for the two. Foster and I walked toward a creek and an open meadow beginning to flood with rainwater. Down here there's a cemetery, and we surveyed it off as much as we could because they had used it for a whole lot, the previous tenant, and just taking the stones and throwing them out there in the woods. But my direct family, which started the place and later became Quakers, left Maryland and moved to Chicago after the Great Chicago Fire in the late 1800s and established America's first public housing project. My great-grandparents were wonderful people who brought affordable housing to America's second-largest city, and later my grandfather and his brother were big civic leaders in Chicago's music and the arts. What most of us were not taught in school is that the state of Maryland required landowners back then to have slaves to improve productivity, since early Americans were British subjects and the king wanted every cent he could squeeze out of this growing territory. So becoming a Quaker or finding some sort of a religious workaround was the only way to avoid perpetuating the slave trade. Behind Sledmore, rows of Puritan gravestones lean, beaten by weather. Some curiously unmarked, or with names like Thomas Jefferson Sudler, or simply Nate and Sweet Pea. My centuries-old family Bible makes reference to slaves who were asked to live in the house along with their families. These gravestones may likely be theirs. Family records indicate George Washington had visited the family on several trips 
and that an ancestor brewed several hundred thousand gallons of peach brandy as gifts to Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia landowners to help them know that George was their candidate. An early political pack fund, to be sure, since there was no national newspaper to spread the word back then. Next door. I would imagine that there's still some black people that carry the Southern name around here. Oh, yeah, there are. I, I don't know any of them. Uh, I really don't, but I know there are some. Uh, I know a rather, to me, was a, is a funny story that Dad, my father, was in in uh, with three other men, and he was going to a ball game in in Baltimore, and he was doing some pretty heavy bragging about the settlers and how they were pretty straight people and one thing and another. And they wasn't paying too much attention to driving. He was driving, and a cop stopped him. Now, I've forgotten what they got stopped for. It didn't make any difference. But they got their ticket. It was a great big colored policeman. And when he signed it, he, he was his name was Suttler. <laughs> so there was quite a, quite a lot of uh, joking about that, of course. <laughs> so... In the town center, I found another black suddler, my age, and willing to try a social experiment with me. I had set up a test to see how people with the same name, but are of a different color, were treated in the exact same situation. We went to a Brooks Brothers in Baltimore, and both walked up to the tie racks to look at neckties. Both of us were greeted by two different store employees who said exactly the same thing. Can I help you? The one who said, can I help you to me, was a salesman. The other one who said, can I help you, to my same namesake, was a security guard. My new friend with whom we share the same last name made this powerful assessment. Definitely don't have the same access as you have. I mean, your white skin gives you access to almost anything that you want. Um, I'm followed in grocery stores and I'm followed in department stores still. Is it better? Yeah, it's better in my own lifetime. It's better, but it's not perfect. It hasn't improved. And white people still say, yeah, I have black friends. And they say that I'm not racist. But if you have to make that statement, then there must be some racism somewhere. Um, I certainly am racist still. I still have to work past all of that stuff because there's jealousy, envy, and sometimes hate. Uh, when I look at the things that other people have access to that I don't have. I realize that as long as I walk around with my family's name, I also walk with a new hindsight of its legacy, both good and bad. Oddly, though, as all stories tend to, my story turns out to have a radical counterpoint, because unlike my father's lineage, with distant family still on the same quote-unquote plantation these 300-plus years later, my mother's family's side gave birth to none other than slave emancipator Abraham Lincoln. It was time to head to the land of Lincoln, Illinois. As I drive through McHenry County, Illinois, I can't remember when the cornfields started and have no idea when they're likely going to stop. Every five minutes or so, I pass over a stream or find a cornfield broken up by a pond or a tree full of squawking birds. 
the sky is blue with big white puffy clouds, the big sky as they say. I'm of course driving to a farm, that being the farm of my 95-year-old great aunt, Zoe Albrecht. Next to her is my grandmother, Jane Seaman, five years younger at the bouncy age of 90. Unlike the somewhat supercilious history lesson I received in Maryland, the Midwest had a more down-to-earth recounting of familial events. Zoe and Jane recall their grandmother having told them stories about the earlier 1800s because their grandmother, my great-grandmother, was... Nancy Hanks, Abraham Lincoln's uh, mother. And they went to visit her. They lived down in Springfield. I didn't get Abe's height, but at least I'd like to think I got an appreciation for the public good by some hopeful twist of DNA. The two sisters were little girls in the era some 60 years after the abolition of slavery. My grandmother Jane recalls Wisconsin later in the 1930s. She was one of the early women in business, managing the accounts for famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And that's definitely another juicy story for another time. Her daughter, my mother, had just returned from school excited. I can remember the first black children that... that, um my children saw they had this little uh, little black kid in um, I think it was probably kindergarten and the they, kids were so excited because this, <laughs> this little boy was all black, he had black skin what did you think? I mean, they well, must have been I like I read about them and everything, you know, we had had lots of, of uh, history about the whole situation so we weren't surprised but it was just very interesting to suddenly be able to see them. But you hear people say now that, like, uh, we have a new subdivision north of town, and they say, oh, there's two black families have moved into that area, you know. Even yet. It's always something to mention, otherwise two white people moved in, nobody says anything. Because they're black, why they come in? And I had one gal the other day, one know if, what I thought about that that black boy that was... um, carrying out groceries at the Sullivan Grocery. And I said, well, I hadn't happened to be there. I hadn't seen him. And he said, well, he's the most pleasant guy, she says, and he's so kind. <laughs> she was white. <laughs> Even yet, so they're accepting them. They really are. As national holidays pass year after year, not even a single serious memorial to slavery stands on the National Mall. The history of blacks in Maryland still remains largely unspoken. In fact, by 1671, the slave trade was so lucrative that the Maryland General Assembly passed an act to accelerate the slave trade, later passing a tax on each slave, the cash then used to build a luxurious new statehouse in Annapolis. Today, slowly, murmurs of slave reparations occur in the halls of Congress, but contemporary politics have sidelined half the country and half our history. Hate crimes have risen 350% in just the past couple of years, and the appetites of the fringe are being given a blind eye, partly due to social media and a Congress seemingly gridlocked by partisanship and dirty tricks. Each national election cycle, a minimum of at least 6 million minority votes are provably deselected or literally uncounted. Any resolution or even serious memorial, if any, surely lies in the conscience of an overall nation made rich. 
And unlike the Lincoln side of the family in the Midwest, my distant other side of the family, who still live on Maryland's eastern shore, seem unconcerned or somehow unconnected with civil rights consciousness. So I set out to try to make things right. NPR caught wind of my quest and broadcast a feature story, and to the best of our knowledge, in which they picked up this bizarre story about the curious split in my family's bloodlines because of the weird confluence of Mayflower, Framers, slavery, and Abraham Lincoln. Kerry Sudler is descended from a slaveholding plantation family. He discovered that he shares the Sudler name with some black folks who still live around the old plantation. He took a tape recorder and went back to apologize to the black settlers who are descendants of his family slaves. Watch your step. Where were the uh, slaves kept around here? Most of them in the basement. They had slave quarters. We don't have any actual shackles or anything down yeah. here. you got to realize that this was all dirt floors. We, I busted through here. This is the width of the thing, and um, we concreted all this. See if I can find a way to turn on, stand right still. There we go. And of course, um, you see the you see how the pores of bricks are. When it rains, the water just comes in. They had coal there, using coal down here. See where they have, we covered that up? Oh, yeah. That little brick section there. Mm-hmm. And we put this furnace in and bricked all that back in there. Of course, it's expensive, even 16 rooms. That is your cousin, Foster Sudler Willis, giving you a tour of Sledmore, one of two plantations your family owned in Sudlersville on the east coast of Maryland. When did you first find out your family owned slaves? When I was growing up, my father would talk about it now and then with sort of a sense of pride and... I didn't think that much of it because, you know, didn't everybody own slaves? I mean, you sort of assume it. It's kind of like if you eat a certain kind of food all the time, you assume everybody else does. You know, we had this grandfather clock that was built in the early 1700s and all this sort of legacy, and I just didn't pay much attention. And when he died, I inherited a family Bible that was written in this quill ink or passages, pages and pages of it in the mid-1700s, and in it, it listed humans and what they had sold for in shillings and pounds and early dollars, and it was just so clinical. It was shocking to me because this is not the experience of everybody else. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it was really kind of troubling to me, and I didn't really understand it, and also, honestly, I didn't really believe it. I mean, can this be true? Well, and in fact, I'd, I'd like to read a few entries from the Sudler family record because I think it really puts it in black and white, just what we're talking about here. L- let, me, let me just read a few entries, and I'm quoting here. Memorandum, December 1801, bought two Negro boys, 210 pounds of Mr. George Tull, Vicks Jock and Jack, and the said Tull sold one Negro woman named Sarah to Michael Murray for $100. Judah had a little one in the cornfield while gathering peas. Wednesday, September 25th, 1811, boy child named Pedum. Arnold ran away on Whit Sunday, May 21st, 1825, and was taken up in the Delaware State on Monday the 23rd by Mr. Peter Stewart. Tubman Sudler went up after Arnold on Thursday the 26th. 
it really makes it very real, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And you wonder what your part is in this. I mean, of course I wasn't alive then. Most of my white friends or white associates will say, hey, it wasn't you, you weren't there. But something occurred to me a few years ago, which is really simple, that if I choose to carry my family's name and there might be some good stuff attached to that, you know, I have to really carry its full legacy. You can't just be all the good stuff and then deselect all the icky part and just show the world the highlight reel. Because much of the social access, if you will, that I have is clearly earned on the backs of other people and on their arms and legs. You did something pretty unusual. After you discovered this family history, you went out with a tape recorder and talked to a lot of relatives, some on the black side, some on the white side. And and we have a bit of tape from a white Sudlerville relative, 80-year-old William Sudler good hand, showing that uh, racism is not just a thing of the past. Colored people, to me, in my lifetime here, were never any kind of a hindrance or any kind of anything. They, they were just what was here. That was part of the way life was. So nobody, there was never, I didn't know of any, any animosity when I was a young fellow. I didn't know of any. And uh, we, as you pick and choose your friends, we pick and chose ours, and they pick and chose theirs, and everybody got along pretty well. And uh, like the colored man today, that uh, as he gets his education and as he acts more like he should act, like a human being should act, he's accepted more and more. And the only thing that keeps them from not being completely accepted is they are different. That's really something. Yeah, it is, Steve, to have been standing on a plantation that once was a slave plantation and is now surrounded by uh, soybeans and corn and this and that, and to to have a guy nine generations later, still family, sipping on iced tea or a mint julep, whatever it was, and tell you about colored people. What was odd to me is after 80 years, I thought, well, how many have you met with the last name and what are they like? And of course, not a finger had ever been lifted to go meet them. Well, you did something quite unusual. You chased down a lot of relatives, descendants of your family's slaves who actually have the same name as you, uh, Carrie Sudler. Let's hear another bit of tape. I have to say I was a little nervous to call because part of the reason I'm calling is that the reason that you and I probably have the same last name is not through the best circumstances in history. Mm -hmm. And so I just, this may sound a little weird, but I just want to apologize for any difficulty that that life is as far as racism and all the rest of it. And I want to let you know that you have somebody with the same last name who's interested in having a level playing field for everybody, and that I don't suppose the white side of the family ever apologized to the black side. I, I really don't know if they ever did or didn't, but I just want to let you know that it does not continue even in silence. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that, and uh, certainly welcome that. So that's a good feeling that goes with that. Let me assure you there are no issues uh, with me along those lines, trying to understand all the things that happened. I guess it's more important to me just to try to understand, you know, what went on. Yeah. In fact, I'm thrilled just the fact that you called. 
So you deliberately set out to apologize to some of the uh, the black descendants of of your family slaves. Yeah, I couldn't find any record, and I don't know of any instance where my family has ever officially or formally or informally apologized to any of these people. And there are hundreds of them and hundreds of them out there, descendants. And um, I think it has to happen. I think it's important that they know that they're important people, as important as I am or you are or anything else. And that if I don't do anything about this, it just continues, and a larger invisible oppression continues, and I'm a participant of it. How did you feel doing this, making these kinds of apologies? I was scared. I have to admit that. I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I didn't know if they were going to yell, you know, swear at me or hit me, or I don't know. It was really a major you know, felt really risky to do it, but I had to do it. I had to do it. And whatever was going to happen would have been worth it. And it has been worth it. We have another bit of tape. And I I think this is a a response of a black settler you met in a store near your old family plantation. Your white skin gives you access to almost anything that you want. I'm followed in grocery stores and I'm followed in department stores still. Is it better? Yeah, it's better in my own lifetime. It's better. But it's not perfect. It hasn't improved. And white people still say, yeah, I have black friends. And they say that I'm not racist. But if you have to make that statement, then there must be some racism somewhere. I certainly am racist still. I still have to work past all of that stuff. Because there's jealousy, envy, and sometimes hate. When I look at the things that other people have access to that I don't have. What did you say to that person? <sighs> I had was talking about access, and I had been in the White House earlier that day because I talked my way into it, which I know how to do. And I really didn't know what to do, so I small-talked the guy up in the beginning and just asked him, you know, what's it like to walk around in a town with this name? It's your last name, but you're not the white guy, so maybe you don't feel the same. And he really did turn and just put it to me really brutally like that. And what a wake-up call, because it never occurred to me that if he and I were shopping in the same place that the security guys are going to be following him around just because he's black. And maybe I'm the one stealing, but he's the one that they follow just because of his skin color. You know, one of the other conversations we had is that ever since he was born, he was taught that he was lazy and stupid and ugly. I mean, imagine growing up your whole life thinking you're lazy, stupid, and ugly, and all of your people are too. So you never really kind of climb out of that because you're told it's hopeless and don't even bother. And here I was raised not to think that I was stupid or lazy or or ugly, but that I can do whatever I want and be the next president, that kind of thing. He was never told that. So I was handed a whole different kind of access, two people with the same name, except one is black and one is white. And here he is just trying to buy a shirt, and they're tracking him down like a dog. It's just really wrong, you know? 
What did you say to him? Did you tell him you're sorry? I did. I said, you know, I I would like to apologize for the way that your life is right now and any participation that my family may have had in it in the last several hundred years in creating a world that is the way it is for you right now, that you were brought here against your will, your family, your great-great-great-great-grandfather nine generations ago, maybe in chains, you know, maybe whatever went on that was really painful that has created a reality for him today that is so much more difficult than my reality and needlessly so. I really don't know what you say to somebody. I mean, I wasn't given the manual or the, the lessons on how to do this and I've gone it alone and a lot of white people really resent me and think that I have no business doing this. I wasn't there. It wasn't my fault. But I carry my family's name. And I carry what it's done, both good and bad. What do you do in life? You just try and do the next right thing, even if you don't understand it. You know, there is another response that, that some people might have to all this, a, a more cynical response that, that really what you're doing as a white American is uh, you're just trying to appease your guilty conscience by apologizing. I wouldn't deny it. I wouldn't deny it. I do have a guilty conscience. I mean, I grew up around a whole lot of serious bigotry, and I saw people get hurt, and I've seen people get hurt. I do feel bad about that, and I'm sensitive to it. So it is hard work on a daily basis to try and overcome bigotry and fear, because that's really what it is. It's fear. I don't really know how to do it. I sure wasn't taught it in school. Well, it's obvious how powerful this whole experience has been for you. I mean, how how important it has been to apologize. Do you have any sense of whether the black settlers you talk to, the descendants of your family's slaves, whether they get anything out of your apologies? Well, only what they said was that they were really glad that I had called. I don't think they knew what to say either because every single one of them had never had this experience and had never expected ever to have this experience, just as I never expected to do it or to ever hear of it, really. And you have to wonder, is saying sorry enough? I don't suppose it's enough, but all I can really do, because I don't have piles of money to pay people or do anything, but it's like a living amend, if that makes sense, where my behavior does not contribute to their continued oppression. I mean, that's kind of all I can do. I I don't suppose it's enough. I, I wish I could do more, but at this point in my life, this is kind of all I can do right now. Kerry Sudler, talking with Steve Paulson. Sudler lives in Los Angeles, and he's still digging into his family's past. Both sides. As for one guy with a family tree of slavers for the crown on one side and a blood relative of the American president who emancipated slaves on the other, I can only hope to put a much-deserved human face on the wretchedness of American history. One need only look to the few early recordings in existence, like this of Slave Fountain Hughes, born 1848. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. 
And now I am 101 years If I thought that I'd ever be a slave again, I'd take a gun and just end it all right away. You can hear the complete NPR story at secretsandshadows.com, along with this program in its entirety, secretsandshadows.com. Secrets and Shadows with Carrie Harrison. I know I speak for millions when I say it is an absolute treat to meet you, Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek. Most of us grew up with you in our living room, one way or the other, whether it was live or in reruns. You helped us define the absolute clear difference between good and bad. There was always a moral essence to what you did and what your show did. And we're so thrilled to be able to talk to you today in this exclusive one-on-one. Thank you. (laughs) It's no better better than the fans of Star Trek, you know. They really know what they're talking about and what we're talking about to them, you know, what the show is about. In the 1960s, um, we had the Voting Rights Act Mm -hmm. just rolling out. Gene Roddenberry, who... People may not know, but this guy was not a washcloth. Mm. He was a World War II bomber pilot. Absolutely. And he was one of those cool guys who went back to see what happens when you do this bombing. Yeah. And had this enlightenment. That's that, right. That peace is really the better choice. Yes. And made this obviously very radical choice. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of the Cold War, you know, and he puts a communist, he puts an African-American, he puts a... Uh, a uh, Japanese guy, uh, uh, Hebrew, Mr. Spock. One Spon. of all of us. That's right. <laughs> One of all, in outer space yeah. as officers. Yeah. So not only were you a woman, a black woman, mm-hmm. and an officer mm-hmm. in 1965 mm-hmm. in color. Yeah. Wow. Yes, it was a wow. People, um, they came down and would stand outside if they couldn't get in just to wait till we came out to shake our hands and to tell us how wonderful our show was or how how much they appreciated what we were doing, you know. Um, And a person specifically, they would tell you what you're up to. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I agree. And uh, it was wonderful. And you are a pioneer, really, of much of the women's movement, mm-hmm. um, a voice for the African-American world. Mm-hmm. We're talking planet Earth, mm-hmm. of which we now have 7 billion humans. Mm-hmm. And you were very much the template for how we get to look at ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was, it was wonderful to be that person, too, you know, to be chosen to... to um, Oh, live that life, you know, and to represent a, not only your own personal people, people like you, but people who weren't like you. And and we had that kind of following. There wasn't a matter of black, white, yellow, brown, or green, you know, it was us, you, me, you, me, you, me, you know. 
I understand that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King mm -hmm. would talk to you here and there because mm -hmm. it wasn't always very comfortable for you. I mean, mm -hmm. you were kind of alone mm -hmm. on TV. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like there were other people mm -hmm. in prime time mm -hmm. in living color mm -hmm. on, MS on NBC. <laughs> I'm saying MSNBC, you know what I watch. <laughs> um, and he came to you and I think probably coached you to stay the course, right? Yep. As a matter of fact, you really got that because I was going to leave the show. He said to me, you can't. Don't you know who you are? What you mean to people? You can't go. When he got through, I, I couldn't go. <laughs> Even though when you first start out on, on it, you, you think, nobody's going to care. Everybody cares because you're representing them. You're talking to, like we're talking to one another. You're talking uh, a person to person about something very important to the world, you know, who we are and what we're doing. And it makes a difference. Well, speaking of making a difference, other than the fact that I'm starstruck, and I've talked to a lot of people, but... I'm delighted. <laughs> Good. Um, you had the first in human history mm -hmm. that we know of mm -hmm. interracial kiss yes. on television. Yes. Game-changing. Yes, yes. But so did my family. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. When you were handed the script, you may not have thought of it as an interracial kiss, no. but when it's on TV, yeah. I mean, it was first, clearly planned. The first interracial kiss on television, anywhere. <laughs> and I said, it is? Oh, that's interesting. And I didn't think of it as that, wow, you know, but people kept coming up to me and are relating in the conversation how incredible that was and I'm going it is you know and uh, but in my family it just simply wasn't because uh, I come from a widely interracial family so if you realize you're different <laughs> you know uh, it plays with your mind you know, how dif different from what? We're, I'm no different from anybody else. They're no different from, from me. And then my family, there's everybody in the world. You know, black, white, yellow, brown, and red. And, and I'm not joking, you know. So it didn't seem strange to me in any way to be out in the world. The... White House today and the whole sort of interesting political structure. We're like back in these basic struggles once again. We'll be out of them before you know it because we don't put up with that. We don't, we don't, um, we don't live that life and life has to move out of the way for everyone. And, and, uh, that's just the way it is. Like it or not, that's the way it is. Yeah, life is for everybody. Your favorite Star Trek episode? Anytime I get to get off the bridge. 
they had me locked on that bridge. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had this really a, a responsible job. I never got off the damn bridge. <laughs> so I went and I told them, and I think there was an episode when 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 uh, they did something about my life off the bridge, you know. And I went, whew, that was interesting, but I do that every day. Let me get back on the bridge. <laughs> I, I love the show, and I love being part of it. You must experience many times, we all know you, but you don't know us. Like, know. we walk up to you I like, well, you. hey, let, you know, let's... I know you. <laughs> I know you. I know every last one of you out there. <laughs> because... I'm 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 part of you. You're part of me. I know. Live long and prosper. Star Trek's Michelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura, joined us as she has yet another birthday in her 80s after celebrating more than a half century in the Star Trek franchise and raising multiple generations through her sweet spirit and gentle nature. Carrie Harrison with you.
spinning somewhere out in space. I feel so much for the whole human race. I think of how tender, I think of how gentle. And I'm not ashamed to admit.